0: Over the years, we've looked back at quite a few dynasties from across the globe, families that have had an ongoing influence, for good or bad, over the generations. And on this occasion, we'll be talking about the Sassoon family, with one of its members, Joseph. Well, beloved listeners, the Sassoon family, family were an extraordinary dynasty of traders who fled Baghdad as Jewish refugees to carve out economic wealth in India, China and the UK. They were often, during the 19th century, referred to as the Rothschilds of the East, although as we'll hear there are some problems with that uh, comparison extraordinary characters in the family tree. Rachel Sassoon, who would become the first woman to edit a national newspaper in Britain, The Observer, Sir Philip, a British politician and chairman of the National Gallery, the famous poet of the Great War, of course, Sigrid Sassoon and many more. And their history has been told by... Joseph Sassoon, who's based in Washington, where he's Professor of History and Political Economy at Georgetown University's Centre for Contemporary Arab Studies. Uh, Joseph's written several books on Iraq, where he was born, and the Middle East, and the new book is called The Global Merchants, the Enterprise and Extravagance of the Sassoon Dynasty. A very warm welcome to you. But I think we need to start with your name and where you fit into the family.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, So when the founder of the dynasty, David Sassoon, fled Baghdad around 1829, 1830, his siblings stayed behind in Baghdad um, because the reason for his departure was really a conflict between David's father and a corrupt governor who was trying to embezzle different merchant families in the province of Baghdad, which was part of the Ottoman Empire. So when he fled, his siblings stayed behind. I'm the descendant of one of those siblings.
0: So you're not, uh, you haven't got too many golden crumbs from the rich man's table, I take it.
1: Unfortunately, no. Okay.
0: Now, the comparisons with the Rothschilds, can you explain why it does and does not fit?
1: Well, it's interesting. There is an article for the first time um, that appears in China that talks about them uh, as the Rothschilds of, of the East and say, actually, this is not a fair comparison to the Sassoon's because the Sassoons are very well known in Asia um, and across the East, but no one has heard the name Rothschild except in Europe. Um, I think that it really developed later on as the Sassoons became more Europeanized, and remember that they intermarried with the Rothschild. Um, and one of the uh, Sassoons who married the Rothschilds become a member of parliament for a very long time. And he and his wife also become extremely close to the royalty in Britain at the beginning of, of the 20th century.
0: You make the point, too, of course, that the, uh, the Sassoons were not bankers like the Rothschilds, but traders.
1: That's very much so, and I have argued, and it's kind of really more a guess rather than a scientific data that in a way the Sassoons were accepted better in the British aristocracy, among the reasons is the fact that there were not money lenders, so the prejudices of um, Jewish bankers did not exist, and two. They were not treated as sometimes the Rothschilds were treated as, you know, nouveau riche who made their money and and are climbing because the Sassoon's kind were aristocracy back in Baghdad. They lost that prominence upon fleeing Baghdad and have to restart again. But they, the British looked at them, you know, well, they were already up our class so that's fine
0: i'm quoting now from a a glowing review in the guardian what perhaps the late victorians really meant when they compared the Sassoons to the rothschilds was simply this they were very rich and they were jewish do you agree with that interpretation
1: I think a little bit of that is correct. I think the fact that they intermarried, it's definitely played a role. But really, the two families are very, very different. I mean, you know, the structure of the uh, Rothschild is much more European. Another interesting element comes up at World War One where um, the Rothschilds were really in a tough spot because part of the family was German. And when Britain went to war, um, well, you know, your cousin is in is in opposition there was no problem and or, or any issue for the Sassoons because they were either in India, part of the British Empire, or in Britain itself. So that actually also kind of made them closer to the royalty uh, at the time.
0: Now, your book draws for the first time on the Sassoon family archives, and this will fascinate the listener, written largely... In an obscure Judeo-Arabic script, indecipherable to previous historians.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I wrote in the book, in the preface, I'm not really was not interested in the family history. I'm more an expert on Middle East and its politics and authoritarianism. But I am a historian, and suddenly I come across this incredible. Treasure of archive, which is based at the National Library in uh, Jerusalem, where they literally have tens and tens of these boxes. and The family kept every scrap of letter. You cannot believe it, from diaries to exercise book of every <laughs> child. Um, incredible menus, um, seating uh, arrangements for dinners with important people. And I had one look at it, and I thought, wow, this is (laughs) really an incredible, it's an ocean that no one has swam in. And I, I felt the desperate need to work on it, realizing that the reason no one has worked on it is exactly what you explained to the listeners, that it's really you need to know the Baghdadi dialect, you need to know Arabic, and you need to know Hebrew. And unless you have the three combinations, you are not going to be able to
0: decipher But you have them, Joseph. You have them.
1: I have them because, fortunately, I was born in Baghdad, so I learned the language. Then Arabic was, in a way, my school, uh, what I was taught in Baghdad growing up. And then um, in Hebrew, because I learned Hebrew afterwards at the university, so I ended up Figuring out the three ways. In addition, by the way, an extra layer of difficulty was the handwriting, um, it, it, you know, which is always a problem when you're decoding 19th century or 17th <laughs> century documents.
0: Yes, I must say, I find that a constant issue. Now, I love this quote of yours. I felt sometimes as if the historian in me, the migrant and the Baghdadi Jew, were all Jockeying for position.
1: Yeah, I mean it's true. There was so on one level, I'm not really directly descended from the family. I did not feel emotionally attached. I did not refrain from criticizing the family sometimes severely about opium trading and other aspects, um, and and berating them for losing all this incredible fortune. But at the same time, there was some connection. Here is David Sassoon, leaves Baghdad, fleeing with nothing, starting from the beginning. And that's really kind of how I felt close to, you know, as an immigrant, as a refugee who left Baghdad, had to escape uh, without anything we had to start again from in the same way, and there was that connection. And also the fact that we both escaped via Iran, um, you know, and each one arrived to somewhere safer and, and, and strove to improve future.
0: They're, they're in Iran. Their prospects are bleak. There's a rapid turnaround when, as you say, the eldest son, David, risks all by making that uh, bold move to India. What's he do?
1: I mean, this is really one of the fascinating aspects of the whole thing. Why would you go to India when you don't know anyone? You don't know anything. This is not like today where you can do a lot of research. It's all word of mouth. He meets someone first in Baghdad where a representative, a British representative who happened to have served in India and tells him about Bombay. Then he arrives in Bushir, which is in southern Iran, which is a trading port. And there there are a lot of sailors coming from India, And just one thing leads to another talking about the opportunities in India. But I really believe that one of the main things that really pushed him more than anything else, because he could have gone easily to the Gulf, where Arabic is his mother tongue, and he could have easily adjusted. There were other Baghdadi Jewish traders in the Gulf. I think he wanted really to believe what he was told that in India no one cared about religion or sect. And as long as you trade and you do it in a f- free and legal way, you're okay. And he took that bold move. And, and, and of course,
0: fa- he, he lands on his feet. thanks to He uh, lands on his feet. Uh, thanks to opium.
1: But thanks first to cotton in the beginning and then to opium wars, that happened by, I mean, you know, you realize when you're writing about dynasty, you have to be bold, you have to be um, brave, you have to be willing to take risks, you have to do a lot of other things, but you have to have also the luck. You have to be fortunate. He arrives in India There is an amazing governor in India who is extremely open to minorities and and religious minorities in particular. Then the Opium War erupts in 1839. He was not even trading opium, but it suddenly opened China. And he starts hearing that there are amazing opportunities in this country, which is even bigger than India. And he sends his son. And so uh, opium becomes later on a reason to stand on the feet. But in the beginning, it was really mostly the cotton in the first few years that established him as a trader.
0: And, of course, we're talking about the globalization of trade, the Industrial Revolution and the uh, rise of the British Empire. And it's taking place at the time of technological advances like steamships and railways and the telegraph.
1: Yes, and that's really, again, I mean, the opportunities that were taking place were incredible, because the minute opium trade begins at at pace in in the 1850s, there is, exactly as you pointed out, this huge development in steamships and the boats are being built more Um, uh, you know, catering to take opium and bring back tea, which are both stored in the same kind of chest. Um, The telegraph begins in 18... And this is really, again, what differentiates certain dynasties that have been phenomenally successful is the ability to adapt to that uh, globalization. It's the ability to adapt to technology and getting on with it in the sense of absorbing it but also using it.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, that David loved uh, Bombay so much that he thought of it in a sense as home.
1: Absolutely and categorically. And you know, there it's interesting, in his will, he dictates that he doesn't want his house to be sold for at least 50 years after his death. That just shows you the kind of commitment. I think he really felt finally safe, secure, and at home. And I think Bombay was a fascinating... I was giving a talk in India a a, a, couple, a week ago on virtual... And all the questions were about Bombay and how he felt. But the reality is, it's a relatively small city of 200,000. There are a lot of minorities across the board. And everyone is getting along with everyone and everyone grasping different opportunities. Um, He built also hospitals and schools and he built the synagogues wherever he went. So, yes, at Bombay, he really saw it as his home more than any other member of the family.
0: Tell me about uh, David's eldest sons, Abdullah and Elias, because uh, they were just as entrepreneurial as dad.
1: Absolutely. I mean, th- he starts teaching them from a very early age. And, you know, when I talk about early age, you have to understand that some of these Kids really were running businesses and totally independent in different parts of the world at age twenty, twenty-one. And of course, there is nowhere to go back and and, and ask for advice because every letter took three weeks. So he spent a lot of time with his two sons from that were born both of them in Baghdad. They both obviously know Arabic. They send them back to Baghdad to hone their trading capabilities and improve the language. And they are very, very different. Um, Elias is sent at a very young age, barely 18, to explore China on his own. Uh, Abdullah, who becomes later on Sir Albert, is really kind uh, the right-hand man for uh, David. And I think, obviously, they work very well under the father tutelage, but the minute he dies, everything erupts, and you see those two dominant personalities um, disagreeing.
0: I was just going to say another brother, also David, Begins the UK arm of the business and uh, social climbing.
1: And that is really just shows you what David's ability to foresee. So he was the first and only merchant family in Bombay in the 1850s to send someone to London. No one ever thought about it. But that becomes a huge, huge, important boost when the American Civil War erupts in 1861. And the British papers are covering the war. They know more about it. They have correspondence. And suddenly something so simple like that, the Sassoon's have better information about the war, what's happening, when, because the cotton prices quadrupled in the beginning of the war
0: i i'm just riffling through the pages here there are so many Sassoons to, to try and deal with sir victor Sassoon, elias uh, a grandson
1: takes yes. over
0: the upstart company in 1924 a keen photographer he was never happier than when snapping beautiful nude women and was rumored to have affairs with uh, dietrich and uh, Chaplin Charlie Chaplin's beloved Paul Ed Goddard, and there's a photograph of him on the set of the film Waterloo Bridge, a mustachioed middle aged chap looking very much at ease with Viv and Larry.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, he was a real, true bon vivant. I mean, with a huge ego. He, anytime a newspaper uh, mentioned his name, he would cut it and put it in his diary. He loved to hop knob with everyone famous and well-known. So, you know, and, and he was making a lot of money because he moved in 1926, 28 from Bombay to Shanghai and began to invest in real estate. He was the first, by the way, to build a skyscraper in Shanghai, which has the same kind of land as Manhattan. So he brought a firm of engineers and architects to build it in in Shanghai. And this building still exists as the Fairmont Hotel, Peace Hotel.
0: I know it well. I've stayed there. I had no idea of the Sassoon connection. Okay, so many wonderful family members to talk about. We've mentioned already Rachel, who, uh, you know, was the the first woman to edit a national newspaper in The Observer, but I had no idea she'd went one better and bought and edited The Sunday Times.
1: Yes. I mean, she was a remarkable woman, but... The most remarkable woman that I think she really changed um, a, quite a lot of the history of feminism later on in Britain is Flores I Assume, who was the first CEO uh, to run a global business at the end of 19th century. And I kind because I found so much material about her, I really dedicated a whole chapter for her and her ability to manage a global business, and also all the conspiracies of the men in the family who were getting more and more upset about her success.
0: One of the, uh, the most interesting Sassoons is, of course, the poet Siegfried. Tell me a little about him.
1: I think Siegfried Sassoon is really the fourth generation of the Sassoons that have lost all the connection. He didn't know that he was Jewish. He didn't know that his father was born in India from a Baghdadi a background. He knew nothing about this. And to me, the change, the dramatic change in four generations is just really astounding. From being so proud about being Sassoons, about being from Baghdad, to someone that discovers anything about his roots only when his father dies and his brother tells him that um, at the burial there were people chanting in a weird language, the weird language being Hebrew. (laughs) Um, But that just tells you where they have gone in such a quick time from 1830 1840 who were mightily proud of their heritage to 1915 to being totally
0: oblivious
1: to, well we'll to where get they we'll get
0: from. on to that in just a moment but let me reintroduce you to your Australian listeners the voice of Joseph Sassoon, Professor of History and Political Economy at Georgetown at the University Centre for Contemporary Arab Studies. He's author of The Global Merchants, The Enterprise and Extravagance of the Sassoon Dynasty, published by Alan Lane for, for Penguin. There's an extraordinary quote from the Countess of Warwick who was a little peeved by David's sons Reuben and Arthur joining her social set, which was built around the future, Edward VII. She probably thought she it was a compliment, but of course it speaks to ingrained stereotypes. And I quote, we resented the introduction of the Jews into the social set of the Prince of Wales, not because we disliked them, but because they had brains and understood finance as a class We did not like brains. As for money, our only understanding of it was in the spending, not the making of it. Dazzling.
1: It is dazzling. It is really dazzling, but it shows you all the you know, the prejudices of that period. Um, And, you know, it's interesting. There were a lot of attacks against the Prince of Wales for befriending the Sassoon's. Why are you with the foreigners? And the fact that they were no longer foreigners was not relevant. But that's how newspapers, there were even a couple of books written attacking. Even Winston Churchill kind of made fun of the Prince of Wales for having those friends uh, constantly with him, so yes, there were a lot of prejudices. But
0: the uh, but there's a paradox, of course. Here we've got Benjamin Disraeli as prime minister, a Jew.
1: Yes, 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 and there were other. You know, the 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 first chief justice at the time uh, also was uh, Jewish. There there was definitely, and also during that period the the oxford and cambridge began to allow jews to enter and and definitely the rothschilds that was the first mp uh in in the british parliament and the first lord so they, there were a lot of two ways i mean on one hand britain was very open and the whole concept of a free trade and this uh kind you know that we have to integrate brains irrelevant of where they are versus all the prejudices against you know so-called foreigners
0: we've discussed the rise now it's time to talk to the fall what happened when did it happen and why
1: I think there were many uh, factors. One, I think they concentrated too much in cotton and opium and other commodities. And they really did not see what you described before the industrial revolution was taking place and that the days of these commodities are gone and that there need to be a change of shift. But as time went by, by the third generation, you definitely see a major change in work ethics and more willingness to become so English that the emphasis should be on spending and living the life of aristocracy by buying more big houses and huge estates and shooting and horse racing rather than working. And I think there is a letter I quote of how they spent only two hours in the office and then they went (laughs) to the club for lunch and then horse racing.
0: So we're seeing a, a process of assimilation and gentrification.
1: Yes. Assimilation at a very high cost in the sense it became almost their ideology, almost their fixation rather than being assimilated. I mean, in a way, they were assimilated in India, but they didn't lose that zest for work and and work ethics and and for business inventions. You asked before about his oldest son. I mean, he started taking fascinating risks in the sense that he realized that Bombay expanding, so he buys a land and turns it into docks, which anyone who goes today to Mumbai still can go and visit the Sassoon docks. And so that spirit has gone. There was no leadership. The leadership was all too busy with, 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 with the aristocracy and how to spend it and how to shine among with the royalty.
0: So what, what we're looking at is a family that in a sense loses its panoptic capacity and settles instead for the cozy and blinkered parochialism.
1: Absolutely. And to me, the story is fascinating because, you know, usually you you read those classic stories of rags to riches to rags. Here, it was actually began with riches and prominence in Baghdad, then it goes to rags, then to riches, and then a major decline. Maybe it's not rags, but it's Definitely a major decline across the board with really no leadership. You mentioned Philip Sassoon. Well, he was officially the chairman, but he was more interested in parliament. He was more interested in his art collection, in the museums. And yet he is the chairman for 11 years, and there isn't one business letter in his collection not one are you
0: kidding that's extraordinary isn't it
1: it is extraordinary it is extraordinary because he wanted the prestige of being a chairman and he wanted the income from being a chairman but wouldn't do anything about it.
0: Well, I have to, I'm have i going to make a prediction now, Joseph, and that is the Sassoon family fortune is about to increase by an order of magnitude because of your book because I think <laughs> that within the hour you're going to get a call from Netflix offering you a fortune for the, well, for the movie rights.
1: I hope you're right.
0: <laughs> it's been great to talk to you. I've been, my guest has been Joseph Sassoon, Professor of History and Political Economy at Georgetown University's Centre for Contemporary Arab Studies, author of The Global Merchants, The Enterprise and Extravagance of the Sassoon Dynasty. And yes, published for Penguin by Alan Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.